This week on WealthTrack, the wide range of income opportunities in emerging markets. A very large part of the overall total return for that dollar pay sovereign asset class has been the income over time. And that's one of the reasons why um, many people are looking at emerging market debt as a strategic asset class and not something tactical that you want to trade in and out of. Kristen Seva, head of Payton and Regal's Emerging Debt Strategies, fills us in this week on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, ClearBridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. One of the biggest challenges for investors since the global financial crisis has been finding income. Despite more than 10 years of continuous predictions that yields on U.S. Treasuries and other developed country bonds couldn't possibly go any lower, they have. To put it into historical perspective, Richard Silla, co-author of the definitive A History of Interest Rates, has told us on several WealthTrack episodes that interest rates are at 5,000-year lows. As the Financial Times recently reported, negative-yielding debt has ballooned to more than $16.5 trillion dollars, the highest in six months, mostly in Europe, but also in Japan. With yields below zero, i.e. negative, investors are paying borrowers to buy their bonds. And if held to maturity, those investors are guaranteed to have a loss. Kind of nuts, but that is the reality unless you look elsewhere, outside of the developed world where yields are more normal. And that is where this week's guest can help us. She is Kristen Seva, Senior Portfolio Manager directing Payton and Regal's nearly $14 billion emerging debt strategies. She is also a member of the Bond Specialist Investment Policy Committee. Seva has managed its Payton Emerging Markets Bond Fund since 1998. The $1 billion fund has delivered average annualized returns of nearly 9% a year under Seva's leadership and ranks in the top 5% of emerging market funds for the last decade. It is rated four-star by Morningstar with a bronze analyst rating. I began the interview by asking Seva to bring us up to speed on the state of the emerging market debt market. What do investors need to know? In emerging markets, you can get yields in portfolios of emerging market uh, sovereign bonds of between 5 to 7%. Uh, And so there is a very big difference, I think, in that opportunity of, of yield. Uh, There's also a valuation argument to be made. So U.S. uh, credit markets are at historical tights, while emerging market debt is not. So we've got both in the investment grade part of the market as well as the high yield part of the market. Um, Emerging markets are trading at the wide end of those historical ranges versus U.S. credit. As a whole, individual investors have looked at the emerging markets, period, and certainly the debt markets, as being very high risk, you know, being volatile, their credit quality uh, is not up to par with de- developed markets debt. What is the story? 
Well, I think with emerging markets, uh, you can really build a very well diversified portfolio. So there's 80 countries in uh, the universe of, of emerging markets. You can build a portfolio that would have exposure to countries in Latin America, Asia, Europe, Middle East, Africa. Uh, so I think that from a risk perspective, um, actually the risk return sharp ratio uh, for emerging market debt is significantly higher than emerging market equities. And that surprises a lot of people. So you're getting over the last 20 years, the same annualized total return, but with one third of the volatility. A part of that is coming from the diversification aspect. And, and part of it's just coming from the very high income component that you're getting uh, in emerging markets as well. To your question also about uh, risk when it comes to low or high credit quality, about 60% of the asset class now is investment grade. So you've got everything from very high quality countries uh, in the A rated category, whether it's UAE, Qatar, China, uh, to the, the single B uh, type countries like Sub-Saharan Africa or Mongolia. So you can really build a, a portfolio that has elements uh, across uh, many different types of countries. And let's talk about the different types of emerging market debt that's available as well. There are actually three different asset classes, uh, all coming under the, the header of uh, emerging market fixed income. So on the dollar pay side, you have sovereigns or, or government debt. So lots of opportunities, both in investment grade and high yield space across those government debt markets. And then you also have the corporate market, which has grown tremendously over the last five years. So you've got over 600 uh, tickers to, to choose from in the emerging market corporate space across many different industries in many different countries. Uh, and those trade at an additional spread to the sovereign of that, of that country to take on that additional corporate risk. Uh, and then in the local pay market, um, that would be um, countries that issue in their own local currency. So the income stream there is, is different uh, or total return stream because you have uh, what's happening on the yield side and then what's also happening on the currency side uh, of that particular bond. One of the other kind of objections or fears about investing in the, the emerging markets debt um, is, uh, is a, a liquidity issue. What are the you know, liquidity concerns uh, and conditions? Well, I think that liquidity is going to vary, um, again, because this is a very complex uh, asset class. So you right. have quite a lot of liquidity in a lot of the local markets, for instance, uh, some of the more well-established and well-traded local markets, whether it be South Africa or uh, Russia or some of the local markets that we traffic in. Um, and then you're going to have less liquidity in, say, some of the frontier markets. Um, so the uh, frontier markets, whether it be Kenya or Zambia local, for instance, are going to have a, a less amount of liquidity. So it really depends on whether you're talking about um, sovereign or corporate, and then depending if you're talking about more established, larger issuers versus the newer frontier markets that have issued uh, less outstanding. The uh, Payton uh, Emerging Bond Fund, uh, which you've run since 1998, and I will add that it's had 9% uh, annualized average returns, since uh, since 1998, which are you know are very impressive returns, 
and you know what what has driven uh, those results with regard to um, that fund which is primarily dollar pay sovereigns you're really going uh-huh. to be uh, you're really going to be getting that income over time and that's going to be a very large part of the overall total return for that dollar pay sovereign asset class has been the income over time and that's one of the reasons why um, many people are looking at emerging market debt as a strategic asset class and not something tactical that you want to trade in and out of because you want to just clip that coupon uh, over time and earn those types of, of, of returns. Now, I think that along with the fact that the risk return, the sharp ratio of emerging market debt looks so favorable compared to almost every other asset class in the public markets over time, and that's really been driving the more recent interest that we're seeing in emerging market debt because remember, emerging markets is really um, under allocated. It's 60% of overall global GDP, but only 15% of global debt markets. So we still have a lot of institutions that have no emerging market debt or very, you know, very little. Um, and over the, over the years, we've had consistent streams of strategic allocations, even during more volatile periods, as those institutions look uh, to make it a strategic asset allocation. It, it, as far as uh, looking at a, at a, at a broader uh, opportunity set, and certainly with the, uh, the other funds that, that you oversee and run as well, uh, you're not doing just dollar pay sovereigns. You're, you're doing the other categories that we discussed. So where are you seeing uh, the best opportunities? Where, where are you looking and where are you uh, investing? Thematically, we like high yield over investment grade. Uh, and one of the reasons for that was um, just the fact that back when COVID struck in March of 2020, you had very quickly after that the Fed uh, coming in to support the U.S. Uh, investment grade market, which also really helped the EM investment grade market as well to recover and to be able to obtain market access. The high yield part of the emerging market um, really uh, took a little bit longer to recover as those countries were um, able to get IMF agreements and to be able to get that financing that they needed to allay investor fears about defaults and then eventually get market access. So we do think the high yield part of the market has more room to run. That's one theme. Uh, And then I'd say country themes in terms of what we're looking at and countries that we think are improving. Um, There's a number of them. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, We think countries like Ukraine, uh, for instance, which um, has shown its ability to really uh, pass important reforms to stay on an IMF program. Again, the IMF and getting on an IMF program is very important for countries to really uh, stick to the to those reform programs. Uh, we like countries like Indonesia, which has a very positive political context right now. It's an attractive um, investment grade country from a valuation perspective. They're promoting foreign investment as they have not uh, previously. And then smaller countries, uh, for example, like Ecuador, uh, which really struggled with COVID, but unexpectedly in in recent elections, um, Lasso uh, was elected a much more market-friendly type of candidate who uh, really opened up a new window of opportunity for Ecuador to pass some much-needed but politically difficult uh, reforms uh, and uh, to also uh, really get uh, unlock some IMF uh, uh, financing. So 
So those are some of the countries that we think are improving. Um, we're really looking to invest in countries that we think are going to be improving fundamentally going forward. So improving fundamentally and also politically. I mean, how important are, uh, is the political environment? And of course, the, one of the reasons that I'm asking that is China. Sure, absolutely. When, so when I say fundamentally, that would really include politics as a very important component of that fundamental right. uh, analysis. Uh, so we think politics uh, and that governance, if you want to talk about ESG and the G in governance, is extremely important in, in emerging markets. Uh, so I'd say um, as it comes to China and how we're looking at China right now, that governance side is, is um, something that we're paying very close attention to in terms of what we think is motivating a lot of the changes and some of the news that we've seen lately about China. Um, and what we think uh, is happening and what the government is, is looking to achieve is to get a better income distribution. So they want a few, at the, few people at the top, few people at the bottom, and most people in that middle income space because they think that growth is going to be driven by consumption of the average person. So a lot of the changes that we've seen in tech, for instance, they don't want um, the tech field to really be uh, dominated by the ultra-wealthy uh, or for those, those types of titans to be overly influential in the growth path of China. Uh, the private education changes and, and the tutoring changes that we've seen and, um, are really about wanting um, things to be affordable so people can have more than one child. Uh, so that's why those tutoring companies are not uh, allowed to have the profits that they once, once did. And same thing, same thing with the property sector uh, changes and regulation that we've seen. Uh, they've cut out a lot of the speculative activity in order to make homes more affordable. So all of those things are really part of uh, thinking through what's uh, motivating China uh, from a governance perspective. That's a, a very positive, benign spin on what we're seeing uh, in China's uh, really kind of interference in uh, some companies and certainly, uh, you know, they're cracking down on, as, as you said, on private tutoring. Obviously, it's a top-down authoritarian uh, regime, so uh, they're, they're getting more and more involved in the private sector. But from your point of view, uh, their intentions are, from a governance point of view, are, are you know, relatively positive intentions. So therefore, uh, on an ESG basis, that would you give China good marks? Well, I think there's other things going on in China on the human rights side that are very concerning. So yeah. certainly, you know, we're going to yes. be looking across many different factors. Um, but I right. think I think the most important uh, factor to understand the regulatory changes that we're seeing right now is really through that lens of, of that promotion of, a, of that type of uh, consumption-led growth path. Um, but certainly, yes, we're going to be looking at a lot of other issues um, that are not uh, particularly positive, and I do think that China, um, both China equities and China uh, fixed income, are really going to be uh, affected uh, by these uncertainties in the regulatory environment and require more of a premium for investors to to get involved. Uh, so I'm not saying it's necessarily a, um, a positive thing from a valuation perspective. We we expect to to get paid more for those types of uncertainties and risks. Tell us how you're applying ESG to the investment process. 
But in addition to all the factors that we would look at on the macroeconomic side that are more quantitative, like growth numbers, inflation, external accounts, fiscal, um, in addition to all of those things that are a little bit more easily quantifiable, we're going to be looking at the more qualitative uh, factors, so environmental, social, and governance factors. And I think in emerging markets, they've always been important uh, to our analysis. And typically, uh, when we're putting together a scorecard on a country to really think about those factors, those ESG factors are a very significant component of that. With regard to the investment process, you really want to integrate that and have a way to integrate it into how you look day-to-day at the fundamental trajectory of every country. And what sort of weight do you give to the ESG considerations in making an investment decision? Typically, we're going to put a 30 to 40% weight of it, so the ESG factors within that overall scorecard is is going to be uh, significant. Uh, if you if, if you look at COVID in, in the time type of period that we're in now, um, you're seeing it, it, we're, we're seeing the importance, especially of the S and the G. So we've seen a number of protests in countries where um, people are not happy with how their governments have handled the crisis. Uh, we've seen uh, changes in political uh, systems. Um, again, because of some of of the changes that people want to see with regard to uh, how they think the governments have have managed this very turbulent time. So it's very, very uh, relevant today. So, Kristen, as far as ESG scoring is concerned, are are you seeing any discernible results as far as performance with uh, countries or issuers that, uh, that have good ESG scores? Definitely. I think that really drives uh, market performance in many different um, circumstances. So if we look at countries that have been on an improving trajectory uh, with ESG, for instance, uh, if you look at Uruguay, it's top five globally on emissions per capita. Uh, It ranks first in Latin America on corruption perception. It's been a very strong democracy, very stable political transitions, and I think that's helped it also to manage the COVID crisis quite well. So we've seen that in countries like Uruguay, we've seen it in countries like Angola um, that has recently emerged uh, after four decades uh, under the Dos Santos administration uh, to a new government that's creating a better business environment, it's um, conducting privatization, Uh, really addressing some of the high-level corruption issues in the country, and we've seen uh, an improvement there as as well. So uh, I think think you see it from the positive. You also see it from the negative side. So I think that we've, um, uh, with with Chile, for instance, which we've become more cautious on, uh, there's going to be a constitutional assembly uh, to rewrite the constitution next year, and we think that uh, that will erode some of the safeguards Uh, for fiscal responsibility that have really upheld Chile's very high credit rating and um, what investors really have come to appreciate about the country. So we we could see, I think, potential deterioration um, because of of that in in countries like Chile. So certainly um, these different ESG uh, factors really do drive uh, markets. And where does China stand as far as uh, an ESG scorecard? What's its ranking? Well, I think that with regard to uh, some of the human rights issues, so the S, I think, would be something that we would score lower. 
but really our ESG scorecards are about improvement versus deterioration. Uh, so yes. I think that, that China um, has already had a lot of difficulties when it comes to certain areas like human rights and certainly on the governance side with, with the government becoming more authoritarian. Um, but I, I think it's, it's balanced out by some of uh, just some of the things that they've been able to do to um, improve uh, social cohesion and to, to really um, manage the COVID crisis uh, quite well. So I, I'd say it's more balanced at this point. And Kristen, as far as the, the impact that the Fed uh, has on the emerging markets, and we're seeing a a slight change in Fed policy that they're going to start tapering, they're going to start, you know, cutting back gradually this year on their bond purchases, and which, of course, have been propping up the U.S. Treasury market. Uh, What impact is this change in Fed policy going to have on emerging market debt? Well, we really don't think that we're going to have another taper tantrum the way that we did back Uh in 2013 because the asset class has changed so much um, since that time. So if you remember back in 2013 with the taper tantrum and being worried about the fragile five um, because, right. of their current, because of their current account deficits, um, all of those countries, those major countries um, have gone into current account uh, surpluses or, or, or neutral with the exception of Turkey, I'd say. So as a whole, uh, the emerging markets uh, countries um, have allowed their currencies over that time period to gradually um, adjust and to weaken, uh, to really allow their current account balances to improve. So we're in a different, really a different environment from the standpoint of current account, a different environment also, I think, in, in terms of spreads. Spreads are wider than they were back in 2013, so I have a little bit more room to, to adjust to what happens in U.S. interest rates. If uh, interest rate rises are really led by inflation expectations increasing or an overall uh, growth environment, global growth, U.S. growth as well, uh, then you can see emerging market spreads actually contract um, to counteract uh, that that type of um, uh, interest rate uh, move, and you don't see a, a, a big overall total return impact on on the asset class, where you have more problems in in really stomaching uh, a U.S. Treasury move is if it happens very very quickly, and if it's more of a real yield led uh, type of situation. The place that emerging market debt plays in in individual portfolios? What what role does it play? I think that it's it plays a really important role in the portfolio um, to get that sort of um, diversification and yield enhancement and also to do that in a in a way that's risk controlled because it is so diverse. It's very, very different from emerging market equities. And in emerging market equities, for instance, um, you you have a situation where it's, it's much more concentrated. China is almost uh, over 30% of the MSCI EM index, for instance. And the top five right. con- countries um, in that index are 80, make up 80% uh, of the index, whereas the top five countries in emerging market debt indices make up only 20% of the index. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. The question we ask everyone on Wealth Track: What would you have all of us own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio? 
I think that you should own some of a blended emerging market debt fund. And by that, I mean uh, a fund that will allow the manager to invest where they think uh, opportunities lie across the three different asset classes that we discussed. So across dollar pay sovereign, dollar pay corporate, and then the local bond markets as well. These markets are changing very rapidly. Valuations can also uh, change very quickly as well. So I think it's important to have a manager that can really have that latitude to, to get in and out of, of opportunities in the various uh, asset classes within the emerging market fixed income universe as, as they see fit. Kristen Seva, Peyton and Regal, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. Thank you, Consuelo. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. Not surprisingly, this week's action point is consider investing in an emerging markets bond fund. As we just learned from Kristen Seva, the emerging markets fixed income space is huge and diverse. It is considerably undervalued compared to developed markets and offers much higher yields. And from a diversification standpoint, it is barely represented in individual portfolios as an asset class. Among Morningstar's highest conviction picks in the emerging markets bond category are an actively managed mutual fund, TCW Emerging Markets Income, which has a Morningstar analyst rating of gold and can invest across the emerging markets universe, including government and non-government, U.S. dollar-denominated, and local currency bonds. And for investors who prefer an index-based ETF, one of Morningstar's highest conviction picks is iShares J.P. Morgan U.S. Dollar Emerging Markets Bond ETF, symbol EMB, which carries a silver analyst rating. EMB focuses on U.S. dollar-denominated emerging markets government and government-related bonds. For all of the reasons we have discussed, emerging market bonds deserve your consideration. Well, next week on WealthTrack, a rare interview with research affiliates Rob Arnott, the financial thought leader, innovator, and global fund manager, analyzes the state of the markets and investments. In this week's extra feature, Kristen Seva discusses her work integrating ESG into the investment process. You can find that interview on WealthTrack.com. And you can stay connected with us all the time by following WealthTrack on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us today. Have a great Labor Day weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.